Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peace Building Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peace building calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2021, held from the 1st to the 5th of November, with both live workshops and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at www.genevapeaceweek.ch. Like, do no harm, do no harm, but we don't even know what to put in there. And it's also realistic to think with digital technology and data today that we can do no harm. We're not going to solve these these uh, these questions in a panel or in a in a conversation like this. We're also not going to solve them from the offices, at least where where I sit, right in the Hague. Yes, I agree with uh, the the notion that it's not about do no harm. It's do no intentional harm because, in as much as you can minimize harm. There is intentional harm by ignoring these first principles over and over again. I think there's a lot of people within this ecosystem who don't necessarily have that day-to-day practice. And so I would just encourage everybody to continue these um, communities of practice and, and coming together to share their experiences. Those are Delphine, Joss, Nanjira, and Jennifer, and you are listening to Digital Pieces of Peace, a podcast produced by New York University's Central International Cooperation as part of Geneva Peace Week 2021 digital series. Our topic today is Do No Harm, Conflict Sensitivity, and Data Responsibility in the Digital Age. New and emerging technologies, data science, and other data-driven methodologies can bring immense potential to support peace-building and humanitarian work. However, using these methods comes with an extreme risk to both the privacy and lives of vulnerable populations if the data is misused or used inappropriately. Although these risks exist across different contexts, the sensitive nature of conflict or violence affected areas even intensifies these challenges. In order to do no harm while utilizing potentials of the digital sphere for peace, we must be able to understand and tackle both ethical Mm -hmm. and technical issues of working with data about crisis affected people. Afghanistan is the latest reminder of our urgent need to understand all aspects of merging new technologies with humanitarian, peace-building, and development work. As the Taliban seized control of major cities, people grew concerned that the group could use social media, online information, or other forms of data to identify citizens who previously worked for the Afghan security forces, civilian governments, or foreign organizations. People are still struggling to understand the full scope of the situation left behind by international actors and their data-driven projects. 
activists are now stressing the risks to Afghans created by all actors who were providing assistance through data and digital tools, and they are calling for greater protection. The situation in Afghanistan is alarming reminder about the need to establish mechanisms that ensure the responsibility of actors in conflict and fragile settings to protect vulnerable populations from both intended and unintended consequences. There are many digital pieces of peace that need to be in place to sustain peace. Do no harm, conflict sensitivity and data responsibility are some of these pieces of puzzle necessary to sustain peace in the digital age and protect vulnerable populations. This is the topic of this Geneva Peace Week podcast hosted by New York University Center on International Cooperation. We talked with civil society and international organizations practitioners, and we asked them how to do no harm in the digital age. My first guest is Delphine Van Solange, Digital Threats Advisor at ICRC. There's such a thing as do no harm. Uh, there's uh, as little harm as possible, but there's a do no harm. And we keep on saying like, do no harm, do no harm, but we don't even know what to put in there. And it's also realistic to think with digital technology and data today that we can do no harm. We will do harm. And I think our duty is to do as little harm as possible. And also not to lie to yourself because we cannot guarantee a zero risk. A minimum obligation for any action or intervention in conflict is that it does no harm, that it consciously seeks to avoid or mitigate negative impacts such as increasing danger for participants in peace activities, reinforcing violence, or disempowering local people. In increasingly digitalized world, the examples of negative impacts are unfortunately growing, and we need to extend the do no harm to emerging technologies and new risks created by their utilization. The problem is that Almost any data collection and processing in humanitarian action comes with some risk. So fully embracing the do no harm principle would mean not collecting any data. And not collecting any data in humanitarian setting comes with its own set of harms. How do we respond to risks without trading off the potential usefulness for populations in need of help. This question leads us to another piece of the puzzle, data responsibility. I talked with Jos Behrens, data policy officer at Center for Humanitarian Data, who shared how through data responsibility, we can promote the use of data where it is responsible to do so. And data responsibility as a safe, ethical, and effective uh, use of data in humanitarian response. And that means it's also set apart a little bit from concepts like data protection or privacy, which are by nature very limitative, right? They're um, focused on restricting use of data. 
what we try and do at the Center for Humanitarian Data is also look at the, the other side of the coin, so to promote the use of data where it is responsible to do so. Um, and that is really at the, the heart of the, the work we do here. And one resource that I wanted to highlight in particular is uh, a resource that came out in February of this year. And these are the IASC operational guidance on data responsibility in humanitarian action. Um, the operational guidance was developed over a, a process of about a year uh, under the auspices of uh, the IASC, so the Interagency Standing Committee, which means that they apply across the humanitarian sector, so not just focus on the UN, but um, NGOs and uh, other entities as well. Um, and the operational guidance contains a set of principles, um, but I think more importantly, uh, a set of concrete actions to take within humanitarian response in order to promote data responsibility. Um, so these are actions like developing an information sharing protocol that sets out how data should be shared, with whom, at what level of sensitivity, etc. Um, actions like data incident management, so what to do when something does go wrong with data. So they, you know, to the topic of making principles, uh, translating them into concrete action, I think this document is really an example of how we, how we can do that. If you cannot protect it, do not collect it, says another of my guests and speakers, practitioner Nanjira Sambuli, fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. There's been so much conversation, um, even within the humanitarian sector, about what do you collect and why. And really, we need to say, have folks, and I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on this, have we really reached a point where we're honest about maybe we should not collect some data just because we think we can be responsible with it today does not guarantee its responsibility tomorrow. And in Afghanistan, what happened really is if you cannot protect it, do not collect it. And that is a scathing lesson for the for the tech optimists out there. It's usually a dichotomy, the optimists and the pessimists. But this, this was predictable. This was always the outcome. And unfortunately, it becomes yet another story to tell in the arc of unintended consequences. Yet it should not be allowed to be that way. That was a moral failure. Some organizations are already very advanced in understanding the data sensitivity and data responsibility, especially with issues related to personal data. However, a specific area of problems arises around non-personal data. And we're just starting to understand the risks associated with the management of non-personal data in humanitarian response. So what happens if we can identify certain groups um, or uh, if we can identify uh, the location of critical infrastructure, right? Personal data, I think we're starting to get to a point where we can um, uh, understand a lot of the risks associated with the management of personal data. For non-personal data, there's still a whole, uh, a whole way to go. And again, we, uh, we do try to cover that with our work on, on data responsibility. So it's not just focused on, uh, on personal data. Um, but that's, yeah, one, one problem area to maybe add to, to this conversation. As Jos mentioned, with time, we are understanding more and more about the data and types of risks, but we are also understanding more about the actors themselves. The pervasive nature of technology makes it 
nearly impossible for many actors to avoid impacting conflict. Tech companies are also becoming piece of puzzle and also need to understand what they can do to mitigate harmful consequences. Many tech companies support human rights and have internal policies for addressing issues such as privacy and free speech. However, these policies usually do not extend to conflict sensitivity or take steps to diminish the impact of their products and services on violence and conflict. I talked with Jennifer yesterday, co-founder and executive director of Just Peace Labs, who shared with us why it is important for companies to take a conflict-sensitive approach to technology development. Yeah, conflict sensitivity is, is definitely not new for anybody who's been working in this space of peace building and humanitarian work. But I think where, and again, to your point, Delphine, that we have a lot of guidance out there, existing guidance out there, but there's nothing that we've seen so far that's working to, to draw the links to this nexus of um, technology, um, conflict specifically, and, and from our perspective, industry. So a lot of the resources out there, for example, for conflict sensitivity for businesses are directed towards extractives and the more traditional business models um, of companies who are working in country, who have employees and in operations on the ground. We don't have so much guidance for uh, multinational companies who don't have that kind of local connection or um, we also don't understand conflict sensitivity so much in the realm of, of, again, the digital harms. What are the digital harms? How can we address them? What are the appropriate remedies? What is the actual impact? In order to do conflict sensitivity analysis, you need to understand the company or the product or, or the technology's role in conflict. Those are huge questions that are still out there. And some of the early efforts we've seen to address some of the human rights concerns, human rights impact assessments, for example, of businesses in conflict settings, they talk maybe a little superficially about the tech industry and they don't get to things like the core algorithms, um, doing an algorithmic impact assessment. I can tell you all the guideline is pretty much out there right now. I mean, obviously we can review, etc. But like the core of the guidance is out there. The rules are out there. The law is out there. When are we going to implement it thoroughly? What are the accountability mechanisms that we want to have in place, not just at one organization level, but at a much broader level? Because I can, as the ICRC, we can do that, and we do it as, as good as it gets, and others will do it as good as it gets with their own stuff. But how can we ensure coherence and consistency that is normalized just only talking about unintended consequences or harms, as such an after the fact and footnote to Delphine's point that it's not even about to do no harm anymore. It's like only talk about the harm if it comes up, else, um, you know, first rush to be the first to draw out something for the PR or anything else than to actually remember what the actual mission is. So, yes, I agree with uh, the, the notion that it's not about do no harm, it's do no intentional harm because, in as much as you can minimize harm, there is intentional harm by ignoring these first principles over and over again. 
I think what we've found uh, over the past years working uh, working on this topic of data responsibility is really how contextual some of these these questions are. So we're not going to solve these these uh, these questions in a panel or in a in a conversation like this. We're also not going to solve them from the offices, at least where where I sit, right in the Hague. Um, there's so much uh, that's highly contextual um, about the the risks associated with data management that we really need to make sure we involve both local staff, um, uh, affected people, you know, really to get an understanding of um, what risks are at play and how do we make sure we account for those in uh, in data management. So I think that's the really the key the key one I would leave the audience with. Lots of great food for thought and, and, and things moving forward. And I guess I would just end with a, another call for breaking down our silos and seeing all the different connections between um, different areas of this ecosystem, the actors involved, and also the issues at play. Um, technology is technology. It doesn't change all that much, whether you're talking about what Facebook's doing or whether you're talking about what the UN is doing and how they're using it. We need to start bringing people together to learn from each other, learn from good practices, learn from um, communities, and also learn how to engage with communities. I think there's a lot of people within this ecosystem who don't necessarily have that day-to-day -day practice. And so I would just encourage everybody to continue these um, communities of practice and, and coming together to share their experiences and, and um, move move the goalposts forward if we can. Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peace Building Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peace building calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2021, held from the 1st to the 5th of November, with both live workshops and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at www.genevapeaceweek.ch.